how does our love for God manifest itself? How, how do we show our love for God? How do people around us see that we are indeed the people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength? According to Jesus, the Son of God, this is the great and first commandment. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But how do I know that I'm doing this? How do you know that you're doing this? According to Jesus, the Son of God, our love for God is seen through holy living in obedience to God. The, the passage that we just meditated upon. But Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you and me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. These are, these are very clear words from our Lord. Jesus does not mince words. He is not vague. He is not speaking in any kind of parable to teach. He is very bluntly saying, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will do what I call you to do. Now, the problem we run into there is, is what? That that oftentimes what we do as Christians, what do we do? We try to look like the world. We try to live as close to the world as possible. We think that if we live like the world, that people of the world will look and go, wow, they're not that much like me. I want to be like them. This is a faulty mindset. It's faulty thinking. It backfires. Because the goal of the Christian life is not to see how close to the world we can get so that we can look like the world and make people feel comfortable around us without sinning. No, the, the goal of the Christian life, the, what we strive for, what we long for, is that we would run away from sin, we would flee from sin, we would see how far away from sin we can get and how close we can draw near to the Lord. That's what we're called to. We're called to obey the Lord. We're called to live in submission to the Lord. Because why? Because He is the Lord. It's, it's, it's what it means. To submit to Jesus Christ as Lord means that He is my master, the one whom I obey. That's what we're called unto. We are not called to get as close to the world we can, as we can. We are called to get as close to our Lord as we can. Join me in prayer this morning. Father, we come to you this morning. And we come to you as weak sinners. We, we come to you as those who 
are prone to wonder, we come to you as those who struggle and wrestle with sin. We come to you as those who would voice the agony of Paul. That the things that we know we should do, Lord, we don't do. And the Lord, the, the, the things that we want to do, we don't do them. And the things that we don't want to do, Lord, we find ourselves doing them and we sit before you, it seems, day after day, moment after moment, confessing our sins to you. Lord, we are thankful for your forgiveness. We're thankful for your cleansing and restoration to righteousness in those moments. God, our prayer and our desire this morning is that you would use your word, your word to spur us on to holy living. God, we want to be those whose love for you is made manifest, who is seen, who is displayed by our lives for you. So God, would you teach us to do that? Would you enable us and strengthen us by your grace to do that this morning, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. I want to invite you to turn this morning back to 1 Peter. We were in 1 Peter a couple weeks ago. We're going to return there and read the passage that that we we kind of was sandwiched in between somewhat between what we looked at a few weeks ago. We're going to read 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21 together this morning. Beginning in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, Or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now I want you to see, Pastor Matt read verses 3 through 12 for our hearing of the word. And I want you to see that this calling on our lives, this call to holy living, is situated under, in between two bookends. You know the function of bookends, right? Maybe you have some bookends, some decorative ones in, in your home holding up some books. Maybe you have a, a, a library at home, or, or you can go into some of the pastor's offices down the hall here, and you can see bookends. You know that, that bookends are going to be situated on either side of a set of books, right? And, and it's, the purpose is what? To, to keep those books standing upright. And here we have in Paul, we have this call in verses 13 to 21 to live a holy life. And it's important before we look at the call to live the holy life, it's important that we understand the two bookends because I believe that if we, if we only read verses 13 through 21, if we only read specifically 13 through 17, 
then this passage, this, this calling to holiness can be burdensome. It can leave us with little hope. It can leave us feeling the pressure of doing something that honestly we cannot do. And so we have to see the two bookends. So I want to just briefly draw your attention back to verses 3 through 12. We won't read them, but I want to remind you of the truths we see there. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the, the glorious truth of verse 3. That Peter begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. And we're born again to this living hope, right, that is, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And he, he talks of the, the beauty of this, that, that even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulty, no matter where, what that looks like in our lives, we find ourselves with the sure and confident hope of being children of God, of being those who have, are recipients of His great mercy, those who have been born again, those who are saved unto a living hope that is guarded and kept in heaven for you. And we who have that living hope are being guarded and kept by Him. He goes on to, to talk about the, the salvation that the, the prophets longed to speak of. They, they, or they did speak of. They longed to know it. They longed to see it. They, they proclaimed it. And, and ultimately, they realized that they were, they were proclaiming it and foretelling of this Messiah and the salvation that we would know. They, they were telling, looking ahead, they were doing it for our benefit. That they looked forward in hope of the Messiah. We have the benefit of seeing and looking back and seeing the work of Christ on the cross in its full. What a beautiful thing that they, they spoke and God led them to do that on our behalf for us. They were not serving themselves, it says in verse 12, but you. And then he, he reminds us of the, the great truth that, that angels, we've talked about this before, that angels long to know this. They want to know the salvation. The, the salvation that when somebody says, hey, are you a Christian? You say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. And you can just move right past it sometimes. Angels are, are, are going, wow. I want to know that. I want to experience that. I've seen it from a distance. I've seen God display His mercy and grace on them. I don't, I, I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what it is to experience that the way you do. The angels long to look upon the glory of God's salvation. So that's bookend number one. Bookend number one. Now, before we talk about holy living, I want to kind of fast forward. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20, and then we're going to come back to verses 13 through 17, okay? Because I want us to see this other book in. I want us to see that the call to holy living, right, the, the command to live holy because God is holy, it's based in God's grace. It's based in the work of God. It's based in the fact that he has called us and he's caused us to be born again. In verse 3, he's called us to a living hope. And because he has done that, because of the work of Christ in our lives, because of our salvation in Christ, we are called to live holy lives. That is the foundation. The command is based on the reality of our salvation. So look with me at verse 18 of chapter 1, where Peter writes, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The, the reason that we live holy lives, the reason that we should live in this reverent fear of God that Peter talks about is because we know something. 
We know something very significant. We know that we have been redeemed. We know that we are the people of God. We are the children of God. Why? Because of the work of God. We know this. And so he sets a very important contrast here. Look at what he says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, not with what? Not with perishable things, in verse 18, but with imperishable things. You, you were not ransomed. You were not redeemed. You were not saved by things of limited value. We were not saved by things that fade or, or, or could one day be insufficient to pay the debt that we owe. We were not saved by these perishable things like silver or gold. No one said, here, I'm going to give $10 for Todd's life, but boy, Randy's life is even more valuable. I'm going to give $50 for him. No, we were saved by that which is imperishable, the precious blood of Christ, that which has eternal value, that which will never come up short, that which will never be insufficient to pay the debt that we cannot pay. We have been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Look what he says about this blood. He said, it is precious blood, precious, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, lamb, you know the significance of the lamb in the Old Testament. Many of you do. Exodus 12. It was, it was the blood of the lamb that was brushed on the doorpost of the homes that caused the Spirit of the Lord to pass over the home that the firstborn child might avoid certain death. In Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah, the suffering servant, was described to be as a lamb led unto slaughter. And in John 1, 29, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb had great significance. And it was with the blood of the Lamb. Blood that is without spot, without blemish, absolutely perfect. There is no sin tainting the blood of Christ. It is the precious, sufficient, eternal, valuable blood of Christ. Shed for you, shed for me, the people of God. And then what does he say? Verse 20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 talks about the sending of Christ, that God sent forth his Son at just the right time, at the perfect time. His timing is never off. It's never wrong. God's timing is always perfect at the fullness of time. As time starting to brim over, it's just coming up and it's about to brim over and God sends forth his son. He sends his son. Acts 2.23 reads that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was according to God's perfect, definite plan. The God who says that my plans will not be thwarted. I will carry out all that I will. He will perfectly execute his will and his plan. And he did this in sending Christ. Here, here's what you need to know this morning. You need to know that Christ's death was no afterthought. It, it was not a situation where God the Father was kind of backed into a corner and had nothing else to do. It wasn't a situation where he went, oh, I didn't see that coming. This, this, this caught me off guard. What am I going to do? I, Jesus, I guess you're going to have to go die for him. I don't know any other option. 
This was not the situation. The story's been told. You may have heard the story before of the of illustrating the gospel with, with, with that of a, a, a bridge operator, and there's a train coming loaded with passengers. And as the train comes to the bridge, it's a drawbridge, and he's got to lower the bridge. And when he starts to lower it, he looks and he sees his son. And his son's down playing and hanging around. You know how boys do. They like to climb and, and goof around and play and stuff. And so he's climbing, he's down in there, and he's up in the gears. And the train operator or the bridge operator's presented with this dilemma if i lower the bridge i'm going to kill my son but if i don't lower the bridge everybody on the train's going to die what's he going to do and the story goes that he lowers the bridge and sacrifices his son that all on the train might live it's a heart-gripping story that misses the point of the gospel it misses the teaching of scripture yes god did indeed sacrifice his one and only son Yes, Christ did die on the cross for us. But it was not because God had no other option. It was not because his hand was forced. It was not because he was caught off guard. It was according to the definite plan of God. It was something in the fullness of time that he did before he was, he was planning to do before the foundation of the world. This is not an afterthought. This is not an accident. God sent forth his son as his plan. It's because of this that we sing, hallelujah, what a savior. It's because of this that we gather and there are days when we stand and we say, man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. This Savior came as a part of the definite plan of God the Father, according to His foreknowledge. He knew that guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, was He. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished, was His cry. He, he didn't cry, oh, I hope this does it. Oh, man, I hope this is sufficient. Wasn't planning on this. No, it is finished. What is finished? The plan of God, the work of God. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Don't you love that thought in itself? That then anew this song will sing. We're not going to get to that point and, and, and we're going to stand before God and then forget all he's done. We're not going to be before the throne of the Lord and go, well, I don't know, what did Jesus do to get us here? No. We are still going to sing, but man, that song is going to be more glorious than we could ever imagine because we're going to be standing in the presence of the one who died in our place. In our place condemned he stood according to the plan of God. Listen, you need to know that this morning, unbeliever. You need to know. You come in and you sit and you hear sermons or you hear teachings or, or whatever it is. You read books. You need to know. You need to know the good news that, that God planned before the foundations of the world. He knew that you were going to rebel against Him. He knew that guilty and vile would be 
words to describe you and me. He knew that. And he knew that the only way that you and I might be saved would be through Jesus Christ. The perfect, precious blood of Christ. He knew that. So at the fullness of time, at the perfect time, he sent Jesus Christ. He sent him to die on the cross. And he was buried. And he rose from the grave. And he has ascended upon high. And the great promise that he has given us is that all, all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and all who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's good news. That's good news that it was God's plan to do that. Would you confess Christ as Lord today? Would you turn to him? Submit your life to him and follow him and love him instead of yourself. Love him instead of your sins. Would you do that today? That's my prayer. I pray that you would do that today. So let's back up to verse 13. 13 to 17. This command to live holy lives. This command to live in obedience to our Lord. To be described as an obedient child. Let's look at this together. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So so the first thing he says there in verse 13 is he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought in Christ. Listen, the, the call to holy living must begin here. It has to. We need Jesus. We need Christ. We have to set our hope upon Him. Our hope for holy living is not in our ability. It's not in how good of a person we are. Our hope for holy living is in Christ. That we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns in all His glory. That great scene in in Revelation, I believe it's Revelation 19, of Christ coming in victory with the armies of heaven coming after Him. King of kings and Lord of lords inscribed upon his thigh. That great scene when he comes that the grace of God in full is manifest and made known to us. And we understand it. We're showered by it. He says, set your hope fully on that day. Set your hope fully on what God's going to do. Fix it completely on the grace brought to you that day. Listen, this is not some wishful thinking. This is not this, I hope I just hope that I'm there. I, I, I hope that happens. Now, this, is a, this is a confident hope, a sure hope, a certain hope. Why? Because it's rooted in Christ's work in the past. It's rooted in Christ's work in the past. It's rooted in the fact that He is a faithful and a holy and a mighty God. It's rooted in the fact that, that we've seen all of the prophecies, all of the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. It's rooted in the fact that that when God said he was going to send a Messiah that would be as one who is a lamb led unto slaughter, that he sent Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, as a lamb led unto slaughter. Behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It is a sure and confident hope anchored in his work in the past and looking forward to his day that he comes to claim all those who are his. How do we do that? 
How do, how do we set our hope upon Christ in a world where there is utter chaos everywhere we turn around? How, how, do, we, how do we set our hope on him when there's so much confusion? There's so much turmoil. There's so many mixed messages. So, there's so much brokenness and hurt and pain in our world. We do it first by preparing our minds for action. Preparing our minds for action, Peter says. It, it literally, you might say, gird the hips of your minds. It's that, that, that picture in antiquity of, of taking your tunic and, and pulling it up and tucking it in. It, it would be the picture, maybe in our modern day, if, if somebody said, hey, I'm going to race you around the walking track this morning. What am I, I'm not going to walk out there like this and go, all right, let's go, right? What am I going to do? Man, I'm going to take off my jacket. I'm going to take off this bow tie so I can breathe better. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. And if I've got some in my truck, I'm going to put some tennis shoes on, right? I'm going to be ready to run. I'm going to be ready. And he says, gird your hip, the hips of your minds. Prepare your minds for action. Get ready. We don't base our hope on the things of the world. We base our hope on Christ and who he is, the character of God, the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God. See, we live in a mindless time. We live in a time that R.C. Sproul, he writes and he says, it's, a, it's an anti-intellectual period of Christian history. Not anti-scientific or anti-technological or even anti-educational, but anti-mind. We live in a day that's anti-mind. But listen, Christianity is not this blind faith. God calls us to love him with all of our mind. Discipline your mind for action. Prepare your mind. Don't, don't check your brain at the door. Don't set aside your thinking abilities. No, think upon God. Discipline your mind. Prepare your mind for action. The second way we do it. He says to remain sober-minded. So prepare them for action, but be sober-minded. Be well-balanced. It's the idea of staying alert when the world tempts you or attempts to intoxicate you with worries and anxieties. That when you turn on the news and you see all the chaos or, or you're like me, you open up your, uh, your email and, you, and your email inbox every morning tells of all the chaos and, and the hurt and the brokenness. That I would stay alert and that I would remember that my Lord, my Savior, the Word of God, the Lamb who was slain, He told me that things are going to get worse. He told me that things are going to get bad. He told me people would hate me because I love Him. He told me that. I'm not surprised. I have a well-balanced, a sober-minded approach to things because I'm a thinking Christian. I read the Word, I know the Word, and I love the Word, the eternal Word, who was with God in the beginning. I love Him. You love Him. Let's remain sober-minded. Let's be prepared for action. But brothers and sisters, this doesn't happen accidentally. You don't just roll out of bed and Pop up sober-minded and prepare for action. You need to be disciplining your mind for action. I need to be growing a love and a devotion and cultivating a longing intellectually for the Lord. I need to be loving God with all of my mind. The next thing Peter talks about is verse 14 to 16. He describes us in verse 14 as obedient children. He, he's echoing the teaching of Jesus in John 14. Peter's there. 
Peter's listening. Peter's hearing that. He's sitting there. He's hearing the Lord say, if you love me, you will obey me. And so Peter writes, as obedient children, this is who you are. You have become children of God. John 1, 12 to 13. He has given you the right to be called the children of God. So as obedient children, if you love me, you will obey me, Jesus says. What does that look like? It it, it looks like not conforming to the world, but instead living a holy life. The obedient life looks like a life of non-conformity. It's the life that, that Paul wrote about in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what does he say? Many of you may know this. What does he say? Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewal of your Athletic ability of your deeds? No, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed. Live a holy life, a a life that is a living sacrifice, a life of worship acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that you may test And you may know the will of God. You want to live a holy life? Do you want to live a life that honors God and glorifies God? Then don't be conformed to the world. Don't don't follow after the, the former lust and the desires that were yours before you came to Christ. You've been ransomed away from these futile ways. You've been saved from those, verse 18 says. So as obedient children, don't be conformed to these passions. Don't be conformed to the longings of the world, the worldly cravings. Perhaps this is the great downfall and challenge of the church in America. We're so quick to run after the ways of the world. We're so quick to to try to look like the world. But God has called us not to conform. He's commanded us, don't conform. But instead, verse 15. But, here's the contrast. Don't be conformed, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, what? You shall be holy, for I am holy. What's the basis for our holiness? What's the basis? Why Why do we live holy lives? Because he who called us is holy. Because our God, our King, our Lord, he is holy. So we're called to live holy lives. Holiness, you, you, you may know, I think instantly, where does your mind go to when you say holiness? It goes to obedience and perfection, right? Typically, we, holiness has two dimensions. One, it has this, this moral perfection, but it also has the dimension of being set apart, that I'm set apart for God's purposes. That's why you can hold, have holy bread, right? Bread has no moral capacity, so you can't have bread that is morally pure, but you have holy bread. Why? Because the bread is set apart for God's purposes. So we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart for God's purposes. 
And we're called to obey. We're called to live lives that avoid sin, that kill sin, and live morally pure. We're called to righteousness. We're called to live holy lives. But I guess just part of it, I mean, probably just a part of our lives when we're talking to other believers, or maybe just a part of our lives when we're here on a Sunday, just a part of our lives that are visible to people, perhaps. That should be holy, the things that people see. So the things I say out loud or the things I post online, that should be holy, but the other stuff that no one sees, that doesn't matter, does it? No, I think Peter would have some serious problems with that, wouldn't he? What does Peter says, say? He says, be holy in all. All of your conduct, verse 15. All of it. All that you do. He doesn't say all your conduct that is seen. He says all of your conduct. That means I'm to be holy when I'm looking on the internet. I'm to be holy in the things that I'm seeing. The websites that you click on, would that classify as holy? The things you scroll on on your phone? Would that fall under the category of holy in all of your conduct? We're called to live holy lives. Every aspect of our lives should be taken captive for the glory of God. Every aspect of our lives should fall under that category that we're called to live holy. We're setting it apart. It's for His purposes and His glory. Why? Because we're called to be holy because He is holy. We're called to be holy because He is holy. I want to just... I think this is important. Let's look at Leviticus real quick. Leviticus 19. I should have marked this because I was going to turn there, huh? In Leviticus 19, we, we start out, and, and this passage has just always gripped my mind. He said, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And he, he goes about giving all these commands. And we can't do them. We, we just, we can't. He, he talks about keeping the Sabbath and, and just this litany of commands. I Matt asked me earlier in the week, he said, what's the scripture reading going to be? And I said, I really want to somehow figure out how to read Leviticus 19 in there so that we come and we come before the Lord and we just feel the weight of perfect obedience that we can't obtain. I, I, he says, be holy, and he gives this list. Keep all my statutes. Don't hate your brother. Do not do injustice in court. Don't oppress your neighbor. Don't rob from him. He has commands about the land, about plants, about, about what you eat, about the things on your skin, about your children, about mediums and necromancers, about sojourners and aliens, those who are oppressed. And we can't. I, I just imagine the, the people hearing this and getting to the end and going, what? Be holy? I can't do that. Oh, oh, <laughs> look at verse, or chapter 20 of Leviticus. See, people say Leviticus is a tough be- book, and man, Leviticus, you can preach Leviticus. Look at, look at chapter 20, where he says, we'll, we'll just read verse 7 and 8 for the sake of time. 
He says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. (laughs) Do you hear that? Do it. Obey. Be holy. I am the Lord your God who sanctifies you. You you see in one verse, 20 verse 8, you see in one verse the compatibility and the beauty of human responsibility and divine grace. You see God's calling, there's no mincing words, be holy for I am holy. And as you strive to be holy, you remember what? You remember that I am Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord who sanctifies. I am the one who makes you holy. Now you go and be who you are. You, O oh child of God, have been redeemed. You have been saved. If you are one of the people of God, you have been made a holy nation, he says in 1 Peter. A holy nation. Not a one-day holy nation, not a almost holy nation, not a sub-holy nation, not a pretty good nation. You've been made a holy nation. Be who you are. And you, as you strive to be who you are, you remember that God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who is holy. He is the one who makes you holy. I... You need to read J.C. Ryle's book, The Holiness of God. Or it's just the whole, it's holiness. Man. He, he talks about in there, he, he talks about how, he says, listen, the, the apostles, were they not the hardest workers you've ever seen? Were they not those who, who feasted on God's presence, who feasted on obedience, who, who God said, do this, and they went and did it? Why? It wasn't because they were trying to earn their salvation. It was because they loved Christ. They loved God deeply, and they were going to pursue Him fully. Were they perfect? No. No. But they pursued God. Here's the question for us. Here's the question. Is holy living a concern for my life? Is is holy living a concern for your life? Is, Is it something that you desire is it something that you long for you you realize in every passage we've read this morning romans 12 first peter 1 leviticus john that was written to the people of god It, it was not written to the super christian it was not written just to the apostles it was written to the people of god holy living is not the calling of super christians It's not the calling of just pastors because we're some different level. No. I'm a sinner just like you. It's a calling for all of us that we would live holy lives. That we would honor God in all that we do. 1 John 2, 3-6 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. John Stott says this is the moral test that John gives us in his letter. It's a moral test. Do we obey If you say you're a child of God, do you obey? Because John says, this is how you know that you've come to know him, if you keep his commandments. He says, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's no other option. 
If we're children of the King, we walk like the King. We honor the King. We live holy lives. Do we obey? Paul writes to Titus, and he describes those who don't hold sound doctrine as those who profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And then listen to what he says. He says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Do we profess to know God, but we deny Him by His works? May it never be. You know, throughout Scripture, listen to the call throughout Scripture. Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 2, 6-7, Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ to which you've been called. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. The testimony is absolute. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of God. Our love for God is manifest in our obedience to Him, our our life of holiness. God, give us that burning desire, that longing to live holy lives. Oh God, would you please do that? Would you convict us, God, of thinking that we can't neglect Facebook? We can't pass by a day without checking Insta or Visco, but yet, God, we give little attention to your word. God, God, convict us. Convict us of being so about representing our business, never missing a conversation about our business, never failing to slip a business card, but God, we think little of how we represent you. God, convict us of being so worried about how we look and what we think or what others think of us. Convict us of that, God. When we do that, we're consumed by our image, but we worry very little about living worthy of His calling. And the question just to leave you with this morning is this. How do we progress in that? How, how do we continue, how do we progress in holiness? Paul called Timothy to practice these things so that people might see your progress. How how do you? I I had a call yesterday morning from one of our senior members. And she was sharing what God's doing and what God's teaching her. And she said, I'm coming up on a birthday. And what I want you to know is I want you to know that you never grow too old to love God more. How do we progress? I would say the first thing is you've got to set your hope on Christ for salvation. If you have not ever followed Christ and submitted your life to Him, repented and trusted Him, you've got to start there. This is the first step. Set your hope on Christ for salvation. Second, set your hope on Christ for sanctification. Holy living is impossible by our own means. We need Christ. We need Jehovah Makadesh. We need the Lord who sanctifies us. We need Jesus. But when our hope is set on Christ, then it's time for us to walk in fellowship with Him and His people. It's time for us to kill the sin that hinders us, and it's time for us to obey Christ at every turn. Our hope rests in Him. 
and our lives have to be lived for him. The thought I would leave you with is, is this this morning. When God's people cease to live holy lives, God's people cease to be the salt and light in a darkened world that he's called us to be. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning. Yeah, we come to you as your people whom you've described as a holy nation, whom you've called unto holiness. As your people who are utterly dependent upon you for that holiness and upon your strength to live holy lives. God, would you please strengthen us to do that? That we would live as obedient children for your glory and your praise. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.